What's up, everyone? Welcome to Desolation Radio with Dan and Nath. Hello. You all right? How are you, son? Good. Thought I'd dive in there instead of waiting for you to introduce me. And mess up again like I normally do. Hope you've all had a good fortnight or so, listeners. They... I hope some of you haven't, actually, just to mix it up a bit. <laughs> anyone specifically that you hope hasn't had a good, good week? Uh, good no, no, just anyone randomly. I'm sure over a two-week period something Someone's, has happened. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, basically, what the whole point of doing this podcast is to essentially normalise communism, you know, anarchist communism. Beastie um, <laughs> But to basically to uh, introduce ideas that, I guess, have been aren't maybe mainstream in Wales into sort of the, the Welsh national consciousness to sort of to brainwash you, mm. the As gullible you know, listeners. We have 100% uh, listener of everyone in Wales. Yeah, and well, uh, so anyway, uh, to that end, today we're going to be reviewing and talking to the one and only Doug Jones or Douglas Jones. You say one and only. Uh, there has also been a Doug Jones this week who's won the Alabama Oh, this, uh, is, a, this is a different This is a this different is, Doug this is Jones. Welsh so, Jones. Yeah. The Welsh historian Douglas Jones. And we're going to be reviewing and talking about his amazing book, The Communist Party of Great Britain and the National Question in Wales. It's published by University of Wales Press, which I should point out is an excellent and very patient publisher. It's going to talk about, I guess, the legacy of the Communist Party. And whilst the Communist Party is sort of electorally weak, uh, now, historically, it's had a pretty big influence on... Uh, many areas of Welsh life, and that's what we're going to talk about with Doug. But first, as always, Wales this week. So Wales this two week. Wales this two weeks, and as Wales we, this two week, as we say every single time, um, what could possibly happen in the two weeks? And some bad stuff has happened. Lots um, of bad stuff. So the most obvious thing, and probably the saddest and most depressing bit of news, which is later exposed to be fake news, was our good friend and comrade Adam uh, shared a post on, on from Facebook on Twitter, which said that. Another homeless person, um, a rough sleeper in Cardiff, had sadly passed away. It was alleged that at the scene, whilst paramedics were reviving them, police were there and they took his sleeping bag and took the sleeping bags and sleeping sort of materials of other rough sleepers and confiscated them. That has now gone viral. It's now since transpired that the rough sleeper, you know, thank God, didn't actually die. He just, you know, he had a seizure mm-hmm. and now he's he's been discharged from hospital and no back no doubt back on the streets yeah but basically i mean the reaction to it has been it has been really really useful as far as i can tell because it's just it's gone viral you know like artist taxi driver chunky mark and and all these sort of big people you know in england basically uh, retweeted this story and it's really shone a spotlight on cardiff council and their continued criminalization and victimization of rough sleepers because make no mistake that's what it is and it's been, and they've been doing it for ages and ages i was on jason hammond show moaning about this a couple of well last month basically before every event or every big sort of you know yearly landmark it would be at christmas or the champions league or the olympics cardiff council tell the police to go and move on rough sleepers um and they victimize them and i've seen it personally with my own eyes police basically nicking someone for begging because basically they don't want tourists to see rough sleepers and it's absolutely appalling and what's happened is people have been jumping in and mentioning bloody tories they're ruining this country because they don't know that cardiff is a labor council and so we were just going through this thread like quite diligently just going everyone who said bloody tories would say yeah true but it is a labor council some people said oh, oh that's terrible you know labor you know that's if, if it's a labor council you know that's terrible but even weirder has been the response of like partisan labor people who go oh yeah but they're only doing it because it's the conservatives like because of conservatives in westminster they have and, literally no choice and it's like 
yeah, they're basically actually saying, oh, well, Cardiff Council have no choice but to... But it's ridiculous. Like, Cardiff Council, have they haven't been forced by the Conservative government, government to... To arrest, to arrest and deport rough sleepers, which is part of their rough sleeping strategy. That's Cardiff Labour Council. That's their policy. It's nothing to do with. I mean, obviously, take it for granted that the Tories are evil in Westminster and they've made life hard for people by cutting council budgets. There's still no excuse for what Cardiff Council are doing, and that whole sort of like I will never criticise the Labour Party under any circumstances thing is just really weird. And if you look at like Harringay Council in London, you know where momentum are correctly trying to deselect these like right-wing councillors and which is what Aditya Chakrabarti wrote an article on you know Labour councils are in many cases at least as bad as the Conservatives I mean they're you know rabid you know, rabid right-wingers you know in bed with property developers punitive measures against rough sleepers um, and Newport Council have done it as well yeah um, so it's, it's not just Cardiff is it and it's the other, not isolated and then the other mad response was from Cardiff Councillor Linda Thorne <laughs> oh I quite so before we go to her I quite liked oh I think it was her response saying that you know this uh, belittles all the people yeah. volunteering yeah it's just like well you know they are somewhat exclusive the people volunteering you know doesn't really take away how horrible this is well yeah and it's um but the thing is it oh you know it was directing what we were pointing out as an attack against them yeah but the, and, and that's what that's a classic labor tactic in wales um so basically what linda thorne said was um if you, you know how dare you attack the police and cardiff council basically so there's the big protest organized against the situation in cardiff at two o'clock on saturday and linda thorne basically said that this protest in itself you know democratic right to you know, protest was an affront and an insult to people working on the front lines of uh, homelessness like the hugger the wallets you know the police even though the police don't help homeless people and so on and so forth i mean i don't really know at the start with this because it's so just contemptible and it really really did floor me it takes a lot to sort of like dent me these days especially mm. when it comes to welsh labor but you've got a good center of gravity <laughs> but the sheer contempt for people to say that and, and the brass neck to basically conflate People moaning, people protesting about rough sleeping, with a criticism of the the people who are helping rough sleepers. I mean, bear in mind that Labour consistently do this in Wales. So if someone criticises, say, shortcomings in the education system, they twist it and say, "Oh, how dare you have a go at our hardworking te- teachers. Hard teachers?" If someone says, "Listen, this is a problem with it. Something's happened with the NHS in Wales," it'll be twisted like, "Oh, how dare you? You know, how dare these applied. nurses put in someone? Yeah, hours, how dare yeah. you criticise our nurses?" And it's like, well, it's not what we're saying. There's, but also, it's the way she sort of implies that the people who come into the protest aren't involved in helping the homeless. I mean, when it's, this protest is organised by former rough sleepers yeah. uh, and and by homelessness workers. I mean, I've, I mean, I volunteered for the Wallach for two years. I'm not going to be there, but yeah. <laughs> but I would be there if I didn't have something else planned. Okay, so Cardiff Council, absolutely contemptible, just rotten, just rotten people, wretched. Rotten to the core. Yeah, they really are, they really are. And what's get Serpico on them. <laughs> Frank! Hey, Frank! Rudy's on. He's good people. Stay the fuck out of this! And what's funny as well is, like, uh, Linda Thorne basically said this and insulted all the people who were going to protest against the, the rough sleeping crisis in Cardiff as, you know, being undemocratic. And then you just, what happens is you get, like, all the Labour lot just, like, liking it and retweeting mm. it. And you're like, I wonder who that is that liked it and retweeted it. And it's like, so-and-so, Labour councillor for Thornhill, you know. Yeah. like. Uh, and then you look at their timeline and it's just... These weird statements like only Labour can open up a children's uh, heart and take it away. Yeah, but they're just, uh, they're just, 
don't she uh, she did kind of rely on a lot of mum arguments, which would be like, uh, "Well, you're complaining, but I don't see you uh, doing anything. Like, what are you every doing? Every homeless person in Wales into your house for free. Yeah, it's unbelievable, man. So um, um, shut up. Yeah, and because she, I don't know. I just sort of wanted to, I don't know, swear at her. I guess like. But what else has happened, uh, Dan? This okay. is not just the homeless uh, thing. Yes, yeah, so my head's going already. Just okay. So um, Simon Thomas. Applied, done a really good job of it. Uh, so basically in the Wales Act, certain powers over energy have been given to the Welsh government and that would allow them to sort of control and have a moratorium on fracking. Uh, or Whether rather, we could rather have it or had, not. They, rather they've had a moratorium on fracking, it would be to allow them to suspend fracking in Wales. Basically what's happened is... But Dan, doesn't fracking create jobs? <laughs> yeah, but rather than take it... So basically they could have had the powers in April next year to stop fracking, but as it stands... They're not going to be doing it until they're not going to take the powers till at least I think it was October 2018 or start 2019 even. By, um, by which uh, at that time, all, all of Brecon Beacons will just be uh, <laughs> mined for gas shale. Oh, like. Yeah, uh, an open just an open cast, one big open cast mine. But, but what's interesting about this is basically the Welsh government have just said we haven't got the capacity, i.e. ability. Mm-hmm. Um, but they say we haven't got the capacity to... Our pockets deal. aren't deep enough at the moment to accept well, all these... We haven't uh, got the capacity to deal with this, to deal with the new powers that we've asked to be devolved, which is what, you know, that really raises... I mean, the fact they're saying this quite openly is really quite... I think it's quite worrying because it raises questions about, you know, is it competence issue? Is it the fact they don't have expertise? You know, is it the, is it the fact the assembly's too small, they don't have the capacity? I mean, a lot of people say capacity... Well, they're getting saying, some more AMs soon, aren't they? I mean, that's what I'm going to do. That's my new job. Yeah, I, I'm lined up as well. Gravy train, man. I cannot yeah. wait. What is it, 80 grand a year? Oh, yeah. Did I tell you I've um, managed to secure that? Um, <laughs> 80,000 pounds more than I'm on now. Yeah. <laughs> 100,000 pounds more than I'm on now. Um, all right. So, yeah. So, that's the first thing that, you know, that our Wales is, you know, the, the Welsh government's record on the environment is shocking anyway. And, and as it stands, they're not even going to have the, you know, they've de- they've themselves delayed their own powers that they asked for, which is I don't know, is essentially admitting that we can't deal with these these issues. The next thing, um, Hitachi, Japanese firm, are going to open up a well on the way to Fire. opening up a nuclear a new nuclear power plant in Wales. Oh, it's nuclear plant, is it? Yeah, I thought it was um, misused back massages. <laughs> so more nuclear power, fantastic. Yeah. Um, jobs, nuclear jobs, jobs, just, jobs, jobs. When does it end? Like I just. <laughs> In a big nuclear dust, but like quite, li- quite literally, li- I mean, literally every single thing that Welsh Labour do, what the Welsh Labour government do, I think I would do the exact opposite. Mm. Like there's, there's not one decision I think they've made since devolution that I think has been good. I just can't think of any. Or and if there has been something, sounds that, like a challenge. I'm and if there has been one. something that's good, it's something that could have gone a whole lot further and been Free far more radical. Oh, I, I know what it could have been. Give prescriptions to people and then allow them to sell them on for a profit yeah they could yeah yeah welsh government letting yourselves down there we're going to talk to doug now we uh, you we well i caught up with doug because basically um there was a problem with nath's uh line and it kept cutting out so, yeah so um, you recorded it and uh, so i recorded it so i had a big conversation with uh, doug about the communist party in wales and its legacy so enjoy we'll cut to that now doug jones wrote the book not who recently beat roy moore the child molester <laughs> Doug, welcome to the pod. Well, it's great to be on here, so thanks for the invite. Yeah, no problem. Okay, so we'll get straight into it. Why write the book? Right, well, doing our PhD research, well, I was working out what I was going to do for the PhD. I mean, originally we were looking at doing something on Marxism and, and Wales. Obviously, that's a pretty broad, broad subject to cover. So to narrow it down, we thought, well, we looked, started looking at the Communist Party, and it, 
even though it wasn't electorally very successful in Wales, at least at parliamentary elections, it did have a significant influence, you know, within the labour movement, within the, the social movement. But when you look at the books that have been written, there's, you know, there's, there's not books specifically about the party. So we thought, you know, that was a gap we wanted to fill, really, and gave the party its due within Welsh history and Welsh politics, you know, and have, you know, and have a look at how its ideas are played out and, and maybe influenced uh, contemporary Wales. And um, OK, so why don't you just tell us about, you know, the history of the Communist Party in Wales, then, Doug, and I guess within the wider British or maybe even, you know, world European context, I mean, how did it develop? Well, the Communist Party itself sort of develops, unlike the Continental Parties, it doesn't develop out of a split within the the Socialist Party. It was made up of all these different sort of Marxist groups, the you know, Social Democratic Federation, the Socialist Labour Party, um, the, the the Workers' Socialist Federation, Vasilya Pankhurst. So there's a lot of these yeah. sort of disparate little, little groups that it's made up from. And that obviously included the South Wales Socialist Society, which essentially was came out of the um, the unofficial reform committee and syndicalism that developed in the just before the, the first world war so the miners next step and things like yeah that. the miners next step and people like that yeah so a lot of the people who joined the communist party from wales when it's formed in 1920 and there are delegates you know there are it's quite a, a tangled up sort of history the, the, the negotiations that lead to that it's quite a you know complex sort of thing there are uh you know, there's a number of Welsh delegates who go to the, the front formation meeting in, in the, the meeting that establishes the Communist Party in 1920. People like, I think, Charlie Gibbon, there's another chap called William Hewlett from Abertillery. Most of the delegates have, have got this background in syndicalism. I mean, yeah. uh, William Hewlett, for, for instance, he was part of the SLP, Socialist Labour Party, which was the party James Connolly had been associated uh, some, with sometime. Yeah, so so, and it's quite interesting when they were having the, the debate, you know, big debate at that founding conference is the relationship with the Labour Party yeah. and parliamentary action and so forth. And it's quite telling that the you know the, the delegates from South Wales are quite dismissive, and it, it's reflective of their syndicalism. I think they're quite dismissive of uh, doing stuff with you know being, being active with Parliament and, and parliamentary politics, and also they're quite dismissive of the relationship with the Labour Party. They're asking, well, you know, they've done nothing for us so far. But anyway, so so this communist there from the very beginning, and someone like William Hewlett, I mean, he travels to Moscow. He's quite an important character at the start. Travels to Moscow and actually gets killed out there. He's got an interesting background because he was helping, and, and I think this is interesting when you consider it as a national question. He was he was helping smuggle people out to to Ireland uh, during the civil war there to fight with the citizens' army. So right, okay. Um, and there are links like that with some of the early communist members. I think there's a, quite a few from. The Mike's Tag branch, for instance, who are who've come the other way, and it used to be, you know, former IRA people. But noble so, hist- history of my Tag there. Yeah. <laughs> good luck, good stuff, lads. So just to clarify that, Doug. So that we're talking formation of the Communist Party of Britain, or yeah, the formation Britain. Of, um, and it has Welsh delegates, basically. Welsh delegates there. I mean, they, they don't actually establish a, a South a South Wales district, which is the only district in, in Wales until. 1937 and um, that isn't established until 1922 you know lenin himself sees the south wales miners as a sort of vanguard group among the british workers and obviously they're, they're very keen to to get active there this is at the time when you know lenin the great man was still alive obviously so he's you know in communication with i'm sure the, the british party yeah i mean you know, i think oh, now what is now then the south wales miners federation they try and get the miners federation of great britain to affiliate to the to the Comintern. Right. Or 
the Red Union, uh, the, the the Soviet, the, the Communist International sort of reunions, League of Unions, and then he writes a paper that you know he, he writes a, a paper then saying what a great example the the South Wales man is showing, and these are you know truly are the vanguard of the British workers. Um, but they don't actually that doesn't actually happen. But it's interesting. There's people like Esther Davis and things involved in that as well. And it's, I think that's from 1921 or something like that. But, but yeah, so they established the Wales, South Wales district in 1922. And a lot of their energies then, in that period between 1922 and up to the end of the general, well, after the general strike. But a lot of their, you know, in the early period, most of their energies are thrown into working within the, the, the Miners' Federation and, and also building the party generally, like really. So they don't really get much... T- Time to think about the, the the national question. You know, I think it's not really a, a matter of great concern for them at that at that time. You know, they've got bigger issues at hand now. Trying a general strike, for instance. So, I mean, the party has some steady growth in that period, uh, but it really doesn't really start growing till the actual uh, general strike. Obviously, that's a that's a huge thing in in, in Wales. Do you mind if I go back a sec, Doug? Um, yeah, of course. You there's, can. A, there's a couple of really interesting things about the formation. I'm wondering, you know, are these significant you know you said about the fact that it was formed unlike in you know european communist parties the communist party in the uk was formed from sort of this disparate collective of loose socialist groups how did that affect everything did it have an impact on i guess the internal composition you know the nature of the communist party of the uk did it make it somehow different i think it does because it doesn't have that mass base to go from really because you know italy and france they managed to develop a mass party there's different factors in how that happens, and obviously it's a longer process, maybe for the Italian party. Well, you know they're, they're facing fascism as well, so you know it's a very complex issue for them. Like, but uh, I think that's the main issue. Is that it's much harder for the party then to to become a mass party, and it doesn't at the height of its membership. I think in in 1942, I think it's, you know it has 50,000 members, so it never really becomes that mass party that the the communists were hoping for. And, yes. and I think that then affects how it does its politics because. You know, immediately after the party's founded, Lenin and the, the Comintern called for the United Front with Social Democratic Parties. Now, in Italy, that's a crazy idea because they only just split from them. Yeah. Uh, but in Britain, it is a good option for them because if they, when they get some of it, well, they think, well, you know, we can, you know, try and work with this bigger party and try and create a, a larger membership in that way and or turn that party to the left. And, uh, and that is what they try to do. With the Labour Party, then you know all through its all through the party's existence. Although by 1927, it's pretty much not going to happen because you know they're you know, prescribed from being a, co- a member of the Communist Party. But for a certain period in the early 20s, you know you've got communists sitting as chairs of the Labour Party. It's quite a you know quite an interesting dimension. Yeah, just openly in the in the Labour Party as communists. Yeah, but then I, I think 24 they, they get prescribed from membership, and in Wales that sort of really sort of plays out by about 1927 when they start entering the class against class, the third period, which I argue in the, in the book is pretty disastrous for the party in Wales because they basically to go to a really ultra-left position and, you know, social democrats and now social fascists. And, uh, you know, they, they just stop working within the trade unions and they're going to set up their own independent yeah. trade unions. But they haven't really got the support for that, really, to be honest. And most oh, of their yeah. energies have been directed it. So it, it ends making, really, I, I argue in the book, it's sort of like, these are isolated. But, I mean, to go back to why they go into class against class, it, it's, com- it's completely down to what's, what's coming down from the Soviet Union. And, you know, obviously they are following the, the Comintern line. But it does, 
resonate, I, I think, as well with with some, you know, the communists in in, in Wales, and because you know they've just been betrayed after the general strike. You know, the, yeah. the Labour Party and the TUC has basically you know left them in the lurch. You know, the bitterness then I think that comes after the the lockout and stuff. I think that a lot of communists would have thought, well, yeah, I can see how this line works out in in Britain. And when, uh, you know, across Europe, obviously the same things are happening, aren't they? The Social Democrats are yeah. selling everyone out. I think Rob Griffiths in Socialism for Wales People that Nathan and I reviewed before, when he says essentially the Labour Party has been useless ever since 1926 after they sold everyone out after the general strike. There's a couple of things now, uh, Doug, we should probably clarify for our listeners that aren't obsessed yes. about the internal workings of the Communist Party. There should be none. There should no. be none. So... <laughs> um, so firstly, I mean, you've talked already about, we'll talk about class against class in the third period in a bit, but explain to us the Comintern, please. Right, well, the Comintern is it's set up, well, very shortly after the, the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, I think the first Congress is in 1919, possibly. Basically, all communist parties would become a member of the Comintern if they wanted to be accepted as part of the, the Third International and the, the Bolshevik-linked uh, communist movement. Yeah, if you want to be um, approved. Approved. You know, the Comintern had 21 theses that every party had to agree to, but um, every party had to accept that. And basically, what the Comintern tried to do then was to set, you know, general lines for communist parties across the world. And I mean, set, it, po- set policy, isn't set it? Set line and set policy. And it, it, there's a tendency to, you know, it was one line fits all, which didn't really work out in different situations. And, you know, sometimes if something was happening in, in, in a big revenue centre at that time, like Germany, then that would be applied to, to all communist parties. And obviously that doesn't really appreciate national conditions. Because if you look at someone like China, they have the United Front. And by 1927, uh, the Guomindang has massacred a lot of the communists and the parties on the run. So that <laughs> was a failure. Like, yeah. It's not funny. I shouldn't be laughing. It's, yeah, it didn't work out in that case. All right. So just, again, just briefly before we move on from, I guess, the founding dynamics back in the 20s i mean you've talked briefly about some of the, the main welsh delegates you know arthur horner and the chap from Abitilleri, i think um who died in ukraine what was the sort of demographic makeup of the communists in, in wales at its inception and in the communist party because you know historians like die smith have strongly implied that socialism or indeed communism i guess was essentially imported and that there's kind of an implicit claim that it was English people who brought communism in, into the valleys. But was that fair, or are they local people? I mean, I'd argue it's probably a, a mixture, to be honest, because obviously yeah. there, are, there is a lot of immigration into Wales during you know the, this period and, and slightly before as well. But you also, I mean, what's quite striking is you know, you know the communists are quite very strong in sort of like West Wales, where I think you'd expect maybe there'd be probably more you know local people, Welsh-speaking people and stuff. Maybe a majority who maybe had come from outside Wales, but I, I think that's overstated. I, I, get, I get the impression that there were, you know, there was a significant number of of local members as well. And whether socialism now has it been brought in? Well, that's a, that's a, I mean, someone like R.J. Derivel, they even if they brought in here, yeah, then you know, there, I think there is also a way in which you know socialism will have gained some sort of Welsh characteristics with one to a better. And, the, and there's also, you know, and there's also, as you said, Welsh speakers amongst this sort of, these cadres, yeah. which kind of undermines this sort of quite crude narrative, I think, that, you know, that, like Welsh speakers are sort of, at the time, all non-conformist and traditional. Yeah. What is interesting, you just said that, you know, people like Arthur Horner were involved in the setting up of the Commerce Party. You said there's a syndicalist, you know, sort of tendency within it, which is quite interesting because, I mean, for, for our listeners, you know, the miners' next step, 
was written in 1911. It was basically a very radical document written by the South Wales miners. It, it's been claimed as an anarchist text because, you know, it argues sort of workers taking over control of the mines and things like that. I mean, was there a tension there between this almost, you know, anarchistic tendency and, and, the, sort of, and the structures of the Communist Party in the early stages or not? Yeah, I think there was. Certainly when they're, they're Bolshevizing the party... Yeah, uh, which is about 1922. Because again, every member of the Comintern was meant to go through a process of Bolshevization, which was, make, which was making the structure more similar to to the Bolshevik Party, because that was seen as as the the best, you know, sort of organizational form to, for a revolutionary party. Now it never it never reaches completion that in Britain, but uh, there are criticisms, you know, that the party's been over bureaucratized from South Wales, especially from syndicalists, or former syndicalists, as it were. Yes. But I think there's also an acceptance as well that the sort of propagandist Marxist parties that they had before, the Social, De- Social Democratic Federation and uh, the SLP, that, th- that their sort of mode of organisation was outmo- was also outmoded. So I think, well, the people who, who are in the party, uh, you know, they, they, they're willing to go along with it to a certain extent because they feel it'll make a tighter, better organized revolutionary party then so um so bolshevization and you know the i guess the affiliation to the Comintern. we know as you said delegates from wales were going over to moscow and to, yeah. what happened were the delegates coming the other way i mean was it sort of like this yeah how, yeah i mean you know, organize it as well or? there were advice soviet advisors in the uk there's i think the famous one would be mikhail Burodin, but there were a few because you know they, they had to come here obviously they were being watched by the the government, you know, they were here under, uh, undercover and so forth. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you know, they'd be advising the party on general lines on, on how to walk and on, you know, the organisation and so forth. And that, especially at the, at the beginning of the party, because uh, the Comintern liked to have experienced communists in the, in their countries where communist parties were really developed so that they could, you know, offer advice and obviously make sure that they, they were built on upon Bolshevik lines. And I mean, Barodin's a fascinating chap because he, he comes to Britain he helps out with the establishment of the party. I mean, he's, I think he's quite close with uh, Harry Pollitt. Then right. he goes to Ireland as well. Um, and then he ends up in China as well. He's, he's you know, he's helping organise a party there. So, I mean, just, some of these people used to have, you know, a great sort of... Uh, Interrailing. Yeah, in miles, you know, whatever it would be in those days. But I mean, a lot of it was, you know, smuggling on ships and all sorts, you know, smuggling themselves on ships. And it's quite interesting hearing histories of British communists who, you know, travelled to Moscow because, you know, there was an Anglo... American sort of section there, and you you know you'd have that de- you'd have members from the British Party who were sitting on that committee, and they'd spend quite extended periods out there. And also, the last thing you did, be, you know, that would yeah, be class. It would, yeah. Although I think the hotel is the same was pretty. Uh, uh, really shame. Great. Uh, but um, uh, and also you had the International Lenin School, so a lot of communists who the local party saw us promising you know they'd be sent there and they'd you know they'd, so they'd that's, that's in moscow is it yeah and there was a quite a contingent that went from wales people like len jeffries charlie stead and i think during the third period they come to the to the fore because they've come back with or the line that they've been taught in moscow and you know sort of playing it to the local conditions often in opposition to what the other party itself in Britain wanted to do. All oh, right. So, that, yeah, that's what I was wondering, you know, whether there'd be a tension between, you know, delegates who were sent over to sort of, you know, Russia to learn and, you know, as part of the Bolshevization process, you know, they'll come back and say, we're going to do this. Would local people, you know, local members be like, well, no, actually that doesn't work. And 
were there tensions within the party in Wales and the UK between yeah. the two and delegates and the, and the locals? Yeah, definitely. And as I think the third period really shows that because they, you know they come back and you know the most seasoned, someone like Arthur Warner, for instance, you know, seasoned uh, activist within the trade union movement. He just sees the idea of having independent parties as an independent union as completely crazy because you know you lose all the effort you put into building your positions within that structure now would be completely abandoned and you'd be left starting from scratch and probably not draw you know it'd take away, you know it would be difficult to, to, to get a mass union as, as what you're involved in but obviously people coming back young probably enthusiastic communists extremely militant and now yeah. You know, got the lines from Moscow. Maybe come back thinking, yes, yeah, it's a great thing to do, but not really taking in, into into consideration how that plays out with local sort of conditions. Bet they're always going on about Moscow as well. Just really annoying everyone talking about the holiday. This is the other thing, Doug. Uh, if you can just <laughs> explain the third period, uh, please. Right. So the third period. So initially, it's it's Bukharin who comes up with it. He says, right. So they're at the United Front, and they said, you know, we've they've gone for the United Front because they say the revolutionary wave is over after. You know, the Bolshevik Revolution, the revolution, yeah. failed revolutions in Germany and Hungary. Well, capitalism has re- sort of jigged itself. And the only, you know, the best thing for us to do now is to sort of try and form alliances and see and see if we can wait for the, a, a more f- fruitful period. You know. So by the mid-20s, Bukharin, you know, he comes up with this idea of the third period. Initially, his theory is a bit more nuanced. And he says, you know, there, there's a revolutionary wave coming again now, but, you know, it might be some way off. But also to say that the social democratic parties are now they're becoming basically an arm of fascism of capitalism. Sorry, we need to rejig our our sort of theory so you know be more to stand up more independently. But I mean, from Bukharin's quite nuanced sort of policy, that becomes over a period of time. And that's about 1926-27. Stalin gets hold of it, and basically it becomes a cruder sort of theory. It's interesting because you know they, they're saying this. You know, just prior to the to the Great Depression, to be honest. So, so even th- th- does this lead to class against class then? Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. Basically, prior to the third period, basically the Communist Party came back. You know, from the you know the twenties when it was set up, it had basically a you're saying a decent relationship with the Labour yeah. Party. There was a bit of animosity towards you know, the, the Social Democrat lead- leadership, but they, you know they did they did sort of get on, I guess. <laughs> but, uh, Although, ironically, you said in Wales there was less enthusiasm for affiliating with the Labour Party than. There was initially, but by the, by the sort of mid twenties, you know, there's a lot of communists within the Labour Party and stuff. So the third period introduces the class against class strategy in the Communist Party in the UK, which basically, as you said, disaffiliates from the Labour Party, denounces them as social fascists, won't work with social democrats. Basically, how did it work out in Wales? What were the attitude of the Welsh communists to, towards the class against class? See, within the party in Britain, I mean, they don't immediately move to that position and it takes a quite an internal party struggle for them to move to it within wales i think it was a mixed attitude to it and certainly for some seeds for seasoned sort of activists like horner i mean he gets accused of the heresy of hornerism because he says well i think what, what happens is group of young communists who have come back from moscow and also people like william rust who are british level who are very keen to back the common turn line they want to get rid of what they see as the old guards, and I think you know it's people like Horner and and, people, and, and, and others, or who they, those who they see slightly more moderate. And so they denounce that as Hornerism, is it? But amongst that, they you know Horner's one of the people who gets pulled into this, and that's because the Welsh Party by this time has been taken over. You know, it's got a, the leadership is 
basically based around the old international learning school students. But basically, they, they try and call a strike, and Mona says, well, you know, this is, this is, this is ridiculous, we shouldn't be doing this at this time. And there's a big argument about that. And ultimately, Horner, because he's back in it, working within the trade unions, is back. Is accused of Hornerism, and has to go to Moscow and uh, recants and and also and, and he's almost and he's almost been thrown out of the party in Britain. Now, when he does go to Moscow, they actually say, well, actually, this isn't really a heresy. And you know, I think they recognise that they you know they they want to keep their most important asset because by then you know he's he's, very, he's high up in the um, South Wales Federation. It's probably leading the South Wales Federation by then. This is about the mid-1932. I think what the big issue there, I think, is that they, it just doesn't match up to the local conditions, and uh, it is pretty disastrous. And yeah, I think at one point, there's only about 200 members left in the party in Wales. It got so bad that when there was actually large meetings or whatever, they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't sit with, with any you know, social democrats. It's like at the barn dance. All right, so we haven't talked about the national question, which is obviously the core theme of the book in the early days you know when the british communist party is founded you know there are these welsh delegates what is the attitude of the welsh delegates and also the british party to you know home rule in wales because obviously at this time you know you've had the irish uh, rising in 1916 irish civil war is underway so what's what's the attitude towards the home rule kenneth kenneth morgan in one of his books i think he says you know the, the party was supportive of it from the very beginning um but but, I mean, when I looked at the, the archives and, and the sources, I couldn't really find any evidence that the party had said anything much about Wales, uh, well, you know, Welsh Home Rule or Scottish Home Rule until about the 1930s, to be honest. Um, and I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is, as we discussed already, you know, the, it was in the middle of like really monumentous industrial struggles for a lot of that period. And plus it was trying to build a new party. So I think in that sense, probably wasn't, a major concern for them because I think at the same time you know the Anglo-Irish Treaty has been signed and in a certain sense that's pushed Home Rule in Wales and Scotland off the agenda a, a little bit there's no strong national party at any worth at that, going at that time so they haven't really got to think about it because you know there, there, there is that there and also I think you know nationalism was probably uh, linked to liberalism at the time so probably seen as a bit of a bourgeois concern so I couldn't find much evidence that they talk about it before the mid thirties. But, but I think it's interesting because if you look at, you know, go back to the miners next step, if you look at that, there are, you know, a lot of it's about devolution of power, isn't it? You know, and uh, it, I think David Egan in whenever in his article, in the but he says it, it's, it was tantalizing how it never sort of broached that issue. Although there are within the miners next step, and that's, that's former St. Louis. I think there are sort of like these, you know, there's, well, there's distinct sort of decentralist, uh, tendencies but then whether or not that's to do with the state probably not does it but isn't it because they wouldn't maybe didn't see the state as the the ideal structure but um but i think it's i think that's interesting and it'd be quite interesting to try and if if, if any researchers can find more about more out about that uh, so yeah they don't really start talking about the national question till the mid 30s and i i think that's to do with a, a number of factors you've got the international uh, factors i think that's really to do with the rise of fascism because the common turn turns towards the pop of the front in 1934 35 and a key sort of a key factor in that is Georgi Dimitrov who had just been at the Reichstag trial and was a you know a big communist hero at that at that point he argues well you know we, we're letting the fascist you know the fascists have taken all these national sort of uh, ideas and they, you know that we need to take them back off them and you know show that there's a progressive side to 
to that sort of, you know, give him more progressive spin. Sounds like an Owen Jones column, the one he's written about <laughs> 20, ta- 20 times. We need to cl- reclaim patriotism. Ha- well, what he calls it is, uh, we need to, what does he say? We need to acclimatise proletarian internationalism to national conditions. And by that, <laughs> by that, I think he's saying, well, well, one, I think, you know, he does sincerely believe that, you know, you, you shouldn't be giving the fascists any sort of uh, material or, or political ground where you don't challenge them. How is that? interpreted by the, the British and Welsh parties and what do they start to do and talk about when it comes to, you know, the Welsh question? There's an international dimension, so we just covered that. And then there's the, um, I think there's a British dimension to it because the British party are quite self-aware, you know, aware that they have been sort of like considered a sort of alien implant into British politics, into the British political scene, which is, right. I mean, obviously, you know, they're part of the Comintern, they've, you know, they've taken on Bolshevik sort of um, ideas. But, you know, they're also men, you know, men and women of the British working class movement. People like Harry Pollitt and stuff like that had come through, you know, the Bonnermakers Union and stuff like this. So they're quite aware that they're seen like. So what they, they try and do then is try and link the Communist Party to a sort of radical, democratic, historic past. You know, right. like Chartists and, you know, they go, you know, there's quite a number of sort of things they hark back to. And so, I mean, one of the first things they do is they organise this march of, it's called the March of English History in London. It's quite ironic because they've got people like Robbie Burns and the ta- <laughs> a lot of Welsh history in there as well. But I think that, you know, at the time, you know, England is, well, for, what was it, for, for Wales, England, as it were. It does show you that, you know, it's, it's still a quite anglicised mentality within the, uh, or within the, or, you know, everything is basically britain like um but but yeah so they, so they start going down this path and you know a lot of it's to do with propaganda uh, and linking up with with this sort of and developing a historical narrative that you know has basically you know, the, the everything is basically leading up to the formation of the communist party and then in wales i think they learn there's evidence that that the person who organized because that was organized by the london district committee and there's evidence that the chap who did that then what goes to South Wales, and there's a, there's a march of history in Wales, but obviously, you know, there's a national question. So this is around 1936, and there's a the first sort of like Welsh language pamphlet gets published by the Communist Party. Now, one of the things they say when they're sort of like trying to make themselves less alien is that we need to, you know, our language should be more, you know, it needs to be, they shouldn't be using you know the more you know Bolshevik terms, and I think they say setting up. It's not a party, it's you know, it's a cell and stuff like this. So <laughs> they try and they try and change the organisational terms. But you know, but I think the most literal thing of that, you know, they basically say we need to speak the language of the people, basically. Yeah. Uh, but I think the most literal example of that is actually publishing this pamphlet in in Welsh, where it's the first pamphlet where they, you know the the programme of the Communist Party is explained, and that's called Llwybr Rhyddid de Werin, and it's published by it was written by a chap called John Roos Williams, right. who was key in organising. The North Wales District, which was formed in 1937. Now they're never a major district, you know. The membership-wise, they, you know, they they always they remain pretty small. But I think they do influence, you know. The, I think the, with their formation, I think you just had Penabeth as well, you know, with the the firebomb, the the, the arson attack on that um, bombing school. So I think you know, even though Plaid, the, the Welsh Nationalist Party doesn't get much out of that ultimately. I think at that period in time, those issues are, are, are back on you know on the agenda. You know, issues to do with the, the nation state and devolution, home rule. So I think that gets the party thinking about it. What's interesting about the 
the North Wales Party is they you know they've got their own uh, organ, their own um, magazine, slice of wearing. They're in Welsh. They're saying through the Reddit Kenneth Lathrop translates as um, through socialism to national freedom. But in the English, at a strap line, it's, uh, it's against fascism and war, which was the general. <laughs> so you can see that they're, 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 yeah. they're trying to speak to two different audiences there. Yeah, that's interesting. And another thing that happens in the same period is, I think, some communist students at Cardiff University, they start some discussions with applied students. And I think, again, that sort of moves them towards thinking more, well, thinking about the national question. So there is an interplay between the Welsh Nationalist Party and the Communist Party, even at this stage? Yeah, there is. When they're developing their ideas, I think it's it's a lot of it is is internal, and obviously I think you know the right of self determination. I think one of the reasons maybe the communists start thinking about it, and maybe the labour movement or the party does it, for example, is because you know the right of self determination is a part of of communism and Marxist theory. So when they have to think about it, they start thinking about it a bit more seriously. Yeah, because um, Stalin had been writing, you know, on the national question. At this time, only in, yeah. in places like you know, talking about places like Armenia, and but it it just seems quite late for the Communist Party in the UK to start talking about the national question. Whereas you know, we know that you know, pre World War One, even there are Welsh miners talking about like the need for yeah. a Welsh Parliament and and things like that. Rob Griffiths wrote in the Socialism of the Welsh People with Gareth Miles. You know, he says that, you know, there's, al- there's almost you could sense that there potentially could have been maybe a a Welsh National Labour movement. You know, in that early pre World One period, but it just for whatever reason it never materialised. But there, were, you know, it wasn't as if there wasn't any national sentiment or sense of national distinctiveness. You know, we know that there were murmurs about a Welsh Parliament a lot earlier than that. So it just seems quite late, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah, and even in Scotland, you know, the, the, John McLean just prior to the foundation, and you know, in the early twenties, he's probably the, the Marxist closest to Bolshevism in Britain in that uh, during the First World War. I mean, he's he's seriously he's saying like we need to have Communist Party Scotland, we need independence. Yeah. And he's he's well behind it, but for some reason, and I think I think one of the issues is that the Communist Party, one of its key things is that you know you need to maintain the unity of the British working class movement, and I think that so that's one factor in it. I think they see. I think they also see the Welsh and maybe Scottish sort of national question quite differently, say from the, how they see the Irish question. Because the Irish question, obviously, there's a you know there's a civil war, there's an armed struggle going on. They see that as really a, a big potentially revolutionary sort of situation. But I think one of the problems maybe with Welsh and Scottish home rule for the for the Communist Party is that Wales and Scotland are also part of the you know Britain and British imperialism. Yeah. So I think there's, there's maybe uh, they're a bit more sceptical than maybe, um, but I, but I, I think a lot of it to do is is with basically you know they've got bigger fish to fry in terms of you know the the um, and not that's not me saying that you know the the home the home rule issue wasn't a, an important issue but I think for the for the party itself they were involved in so many different other factors that uh, it's only really after the third period that they really get a chance to to think seriously about it. And yeah, I, I I agree. It is it is pretty late, and yeah. But I didn't find any well any any sources at all to see that they were. Um, okay, so you know we've 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 let forward now, you know, post World War Two, and the welfare state, as you said, takes the window at the sales of the communists because there is this sort of effective, redistributive, ameliorative, uh, you know, yeah. the welfare state. Do the communists just go into the Labour Party then? Or do they, no, they don't. Know, fair, fair play. They they. 
Well, you know, I think they make a bit of a mistake in 1945 because when the elections held, then they sort of step back. There's a big debate within the, the you know, within communist historiography whether that was a, a good idea or not, and I think it probably wasn't. And within the party as well, you know. So basically, you know, they were popular as they were ever going to be because yes. the Soviets had just pretty much won the war yeah. uh, with the help of everybody with, with the nations. But um, but when it comes to elections, they only stand a handful of candidates. Now, two MPs elected, and uh, Harry Pollock comes really close in one of the East. But, yeah, it's really, know, clo- really close, isn't it? Like, yeah, it's about 100, like 100 odd votes. And, and then, well, I think Idris Cox says, well, if, you, if, you'd, if we'd uh, actually done more about the national question, because I think the, those votes go to Plaid. Right. Say, if we'd done more about the national question, we might have actually won, the, won that seat as well. But, but, you know, they don't put a lot of, they don't put a large number of candidates. And, you, you, I mean, it would have been interesting if they had, whether or not when a large number of, of MPs, which would allow them to have more influence you know, over over the direction of Labour Party policy and so forth, but that never happened. So, but I think it is one thing about the war. I think I think the war plays a, a, a crucial factor in developing the Communist Party's attitude towards Welsh uh, devolution. Because prior to the war, they're supportive of a Welsh Parliament, um, but they don't really get the backing from the um, from the the part the party centre. And they really do struggle to try and fit Wales into the def- Stanley's definition of what, what constitutes a nation, because there's that bit about the you know it being an economic um, unit, and they they really go to some right, right you know they sort of got contortionist legs to try and fit Wales into that, um, and you can see that the party centre really aren't impressed with that sort of with their efforts there. But after the Second World War, Wales has become an economic unit, so their arguments are much stronger. There's also this idea that you know the Welsh had contributed to to the war effort and you know we deserve to be part of the family of democratic nations so that comes through really strongly in a lot of the the, the arguments for uh, devolution that the party makes immediately after the war and you know from about 1944 onwards so that's quite interesting I think how well one of the one communists I think it's a chap called C. Lloyd Humphreys and he writes an article saying look we've just seen how nations have been destroyed and, and rebuilt so they want you know, the reconstruction to also include a dimension of devolution, and and, and they, from the, from forty four onwards, you know, the party policy is a parliament for Wales, basically. To what extent then were they reliant on? You said they had to sort of contort themselves to you know, deal with Stalin's sort of time where before he um, became you know the head of the Soviet Union, Stalin was was he the in charge of the national national minorities, and he wrote he wrote he wrote the book, which is still, I think, very good on nationalism and national identity and national minorities but were they was every all the policy in the commerce party in, in britain dictated by sort of his writings there's some who argue that it was i mean well certainly you know it was all dictated by the commenton line i'd take a yeah. more i take a more nuanced approach i think within those general lines there was significant space for parties to define those lines in, in, in their own particular ways. Now, you know, that might earn them retributions from uh, the Comintern, but I think there's evidence to show from a variety of communist parties that, you know, parties would find ways of of adapting these lines to, to, to what suited, to what was better for, for their national sort of condition. And I'm not saying, you know, they would, you know, they didn't depart from these lines completely, but, you know, they'd find ways of, of adapting them, I think. Uh, so it's, it wasn't, you know, it's not as if they were, I mean, obviously there was Soviet influence. You, you, it's impossible to deny that. But um, 
I think within those general lines that there was some room for maneuver. So during the Cold War, I mean, we know that, like as you said, the communists were sort of at, at their high in the UK at 1945 and came within a whisker of winning. Was it you said Ron the East? And they they won a couple of you know they got a couple of MPs to Parliament, and but then you fast forward what you know the, the fifth the next election in the fifties and they've collapsed basically. Presumably all the votes have gone to the Labour, but you know vote for Labour. How do they try to re-establish themselves during the Cold War? So at, at the time, you know, then obviously the reason they they're declining because the Soviet Union is becoming being demonised, and we know that the Labour Party is sort of picking a side, as it were. So what happens that during the Cold War? Well, one interesting dimension, which which they one route they go down, I think, in the early fifties, is they try and turn this idea of the communists has been the alien force within in British politics on his head. Right. So they say we stand for British national independence, which conflicts a little bit with um, supporting Home Rule, you know, for, for Wales yeah. as well. But there's an interesting dimension dialectic going on there. But you know, they basically saying, well, you know. The British government now is just the the, the lackey of uh, you know the USA and of, of global capitalism. So we are actually the party that, and that, that's quite an interesting argument they put yeah. forward. And they, and they do sort of make themselves that you know, uh, and you know there's there's things about uh, you know American culture and stuff coming in undermining. Um, they, they can, yeah, it's, it's some some dimensions that you know they're quite prudish. You think you know comic books are. <laughs> <laughs> about for people and all this sort of thing, but I mean, you can see some of the argument because they are saying that you're know, destroying a lo- you know our local film industries or our cultural sort of. And anyway, they're supportive of people like Ewan McCall, um, folk uh, you know folk singers like that. You know they, they you know they they sort of back that sort of British folk sort of things. And so it's quite interesting that they go down that path. I don't think it's very successful because people just. Communists so, putting on uh, weak acoustic the, gigs for everyone, like. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, yeah. So that's one dimension of it. Uh, obviously, again, they're, st- they're still trying this. You know, they still hold hopes of of linking with the Labour Party, but at the same time, they, they do start start take elections a lot more seriously. Yeah. And again, this causes some um, debate within the party because some people are saying, "Well, it's just really not a, not worth the effort. We should be focusing more on building ourselves into trade unions, building a sort of more of a social movement type of." Uh, form of activism because obviously they you know they they get involved with things like cnd they do anti-racism campaigns and things like this you know the anti-imperialist campaigns and you know i mean you know they're, they're also part of the parliament for wales campaign from you know 1950 onwards oh uh, right you know it just cox sits on the committee of that and he just cox was the was the, the, the party secretary in wales for that period but it's quite interesting I mean, and then they have this you know they're meeting they have the meeting in uh in sandra and dud wells i think to uh to establish that organization and you know they, they just cocked his speech and you know he's talking about home influence but also about how you know they need to link these things up with what's going on in korea and what's going on in malaysia and all these different things which is which shows still you know the internationalist sort of attitude of the party so there's so they're basically involved in campaigns for home rule in the 50s yeah that's so, a sort of active sort of active thing they do over home rule really a couple of things happen. I mean, that brings us nicely on to the question of splits and attitude towards international developments, because obviously in Hungary in 1956, there's, um, mm. you know, an uprising against Soviet rule. And that's where the, I mean, that's where the phrase uh, tankies comes from, doesn't it? It's, I believe, you know, tankies is basically, you know, it, today it's a slur that I have, you know, had to suffer uh, and it, you know, it hurts. But but basically being uh, a, a tanky is given to those members of the Communist Party and who basically supported the Soviets going in and crushing the Hungarian 
resistance, essentially, wasn't it? Were there splits in the British party and were there splits in Wales? There were huge splits in the British party over 56, definitely. I mean, it, massive splits there. So you've got, the, you know, you've got the, the real hardliners like Rajani Pamter, who basically says, well, this is just a spot on the sun. <laughs> worry about it. And that actually causes a lot of outrage among the members because, you know, this comes at the same time you've had, you've had Stalin's secret speech. It's yeah. Like a secret speech about Stalin, you know, and exposing all the, you know, the terror and uh, the crimes that he'd done. So, obviously, a lot of party members are shocked. I mean, your rank and file are shocked because they didn't know about that sort of stuff. Or they maybe willingly didn't sort of take it in or whatever. But, you know, party leadership did know because, you know, people like Paulette had tried to save some British people who got killed in the terror but so that, Did that, they, that I, I didn't know that there were there were many British people killed in there wasn't there wasn't many but there was well, there was one or two and I think uh, some woman that Harry Pollitt was very close to and you know went to I think he went to the Maria but she married a Russian became a Russian citizen and then got killed in the terror because I think if you weren't a Russian citizen or if you you, you were pretty much going to survive but if you were a Russian citizen or like the Polish party had been Basically, we're living there and you couldn't go back to your own country, then you were in a very dangerous spot. So that's happened. A lot of communists are really shocked with that. And that's, you know, got them questioning, well, you know, I joined this party because I want a better world. And and then, of course, you get the Hungary invasion. which you, Yeah, there's a big split in the party in Britain. I think, well, I don't know the exact figure, but there's, you know, there's, a, there's a significant percentage of the membership at least. And, you know, a lot of key, lot of good key members, like people like E.P. Thompson with the history uh, group and stuff like yeah. that. And in Wales... There's a split, and I think what it also does, it really demoralises members as well. Because I think there's a, in the book I, I mentioned uh, uh, the party secretary at that time, remember his name was now, but he says you know that you know this party is pretty pretty demoralised at the moment because all these sort of hits they've had, uh, they're under a lot of pressure. And I think I did interview someone as well, and they were saying when they were at the time of the Hungary campaign, you know they were really unpopular with their fellow workers because you know they you know, they were being spat and stuff, and you know abused and. All sorts. Some of the main figures, I mean, I think Will Painter, he certainly thought it was an overreaction, but he sort of argued as well, you know, these were sort of like right-wing CIA-backed extremists and they needed to be, you know, clamped down on. But someone like Horner, he, I think he knew if it were the people who were, like, who were in the Hungarian administration who got, you know, with Nazis, you know, who took over afterwards. So even though... Publicly, he's, he's he's sort of like supportive of it. I think privately, he was very uh, distressed by it. I do I do quote another party member. I think it was just suggesting this example, who writes to the Welsh uh, secretary saying, "Well, I've got to leave the party. I just um, and you know it had a real real. You can tell from the letter that he's, he's you know, it's a massive psychological effect on him because he's saying, "Well, you know, I, this is what I believed in all my life, and now I'm questioning everything I believed in." And so, so it's quite a traumatic period, I think. So Hungary, big splits. But then when you move to Czechoslovakia in the 68, and I think that's where tankies comes from. Are any of these splits, Doug, are they on, obviously they're on, you know, it's, it's bad that they're going in, but is any of it on, like, national issues of, like, national sovereignty? Um, I didn't find that, that personal but, question. Uh, could possibly, yeah, I'm sure that, that was a dimension to it, but, um, as I said, I didn't really find specific evidence pointing to that. Especially with Hungary, it's the mixture of all these different, sort of, you know, these, these two massive hits that they get in terms of well, you know, the regime you thought was, you know, the shining light is now tarnished with this, you know, you know terror and, and so forth. Plus, yeah, I'm, you know, I'd imagine that, you know, the national dimension must have played some sort of part there, isn't it? Like, you know, a, an independent state 
you know, especially with all the focus on imperialism and so forth, well, it's, you know, it's sort of almost a swarm of Soviet imperialism then, isn't it? So. PR disaster. PR disaster, yeah. Do you think but, those the Communist Party members that were having an existential crisis at the time were suffering more or less than centrist commentators in The Guardian are now <laughs> after Jeremy Corbyn's taken over the Labour uh, Party? Less, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so the Velvet Revolution in, in Hungary split the party. I'm going to sort of bring it back, I guess, to the UK, you know, because we're, we're moving out of the 60s. What is happening with the Communist Party in Wales and its relationship to the national question and home rule? Right, so I'll just go back a little bit. 50s, they sort of, so after the Parliament for Wales campaign, the part, and what happens in 56, the party sort of loses interest in the national question slightly. I think there's, that's to do with issues of leadership as well. They get a new leadership, uh, a new party secretary, Bert Pearce, in 1960 and he starts refocusing the party in Wales on policy specific for Wales and also on looking at the national question again but that doesn't really sort of doesn't really have any much impact until say you know the Plaid Cymru success in Rhondda West in Carmarthen in the close call they have in in Rhondda West a year later so that really focuses minds again on the national question and by 69 then they've rethought it out again they've had a, another long debate about it and you know, they've done their policy again on it. And again, it's it supports the parliament in Wales and Scotland. I think they also start asking for tax raising powers and, yeah, you know, all within a, a federal system. And then, you know, they're sort of primed ready then for the, the, the decade-long devolution debate in the 70s, in which they play, I'd say, quite a prominent role, to be honest, in terms of, well, it's a very interesting role in terms of, you know, how they critique the Labour Party's position uh, and what's on offer. And also... So what, 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 what do they say then, Doug? Well, basically, they're saying, you know, that they're quite pressing right at the start of it. Bert Pierce says, look, you need to sort of get this right. The Kilbrandon thing, you need to get this right because it's basically a time bomb ticking under you. And of course, by the, you know, that becomes a, a reality by 79 because the way they ha- the Labour Party handles the devolution issue in the 70s ends up with, you know, the election of Thatcher, basically. So basically, you know, they're, they're very critical. They say basically the Labour Party is offering very little in terms of you know, what they're proposing for devolution. They say the Labour Party is really conservative constitutionally because of the way it has become part of the British establishment. You know, it's, they argue, you know, it's not in the Labour Party's interest anymore because there's so much party establishment, because, they, you know, they're not a fully, you know, socialist party anymore. Uh, they just don't want to offer any, you know, any changes to, to the devolutionary settlement. Because for the communists, you know, they argue, like, if you can get devolution, you can use, you know, government in Wales to build a, you know, a proper socialist sort of government and to, to have it as, a, as an example for the rest of Britain. It's the same sort of idea Marx has about Ireland by the end, because initially Marx says about to the Ireland, British Revolution. Yeah, she says initially, you know, British workers need to overthrow, but by the end he's saying it's the... So that same sort of idea, you know, they say, right. you know, Wales and Scotland because could become examples, well, for England basically, to, and they're, they're, you know, they're supportive of, of much broader, you know, forms of devolution. And as I said, they, you know, they want to see a Welsh, Welsh Parliament with tax-raising powers uh, within a sort of federal system. One of the issues they do have, though, is they sort of they still want to keep a lot of the economic decisions at Westminster. And I think that's one of the weaknesses of, of, their, of their policy, is that it could work if you had a socialist government in power at Westminster, but if you don't, it causes yeah. chaos, then, doesn't it? And, and I think that wasn't really properly thought through by them. It's interesting when you read their submissions to the Kilbrandon Commission, to the Crowther Commission or whatever it was, they also use devolution as a way to democratise power within Wales and you know, to workplaces and, and to have more, you know, direct or local democracy. 
Um, especially, and I think there's some quite interesting ideas that they, they bring up there, which would have been great. It's quite radical rhetoric and ideas, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, which obviously, you know, don't get heated or, you know, we all know what happened in 1979. What happens then, Doug, in, in the 80s and, uh, you know, under Thatcher, I guess, firstly for the Communist Party in Wales, but also for the Communist Party's attitude towards, or deeply right, so, people on the home rule, like I'm David Lloyd George. Yeah. <laughs> Even though the party doesn't, really support the Labour proposals and they say and they say afterwards well this uh, we lost this referendum because you you offered such lukewarm proposals that well people didn't support revolution probably just thought it was really pointless to vote for because it didn't really you know it didn't offer it didn't offer anything for anybody so they say it's no wonder this just sort of failed but I mean so 79 obviously they're very disappointed about the the referendum result Guy Francis especially you know he, he can't he can't really understand why people like Kinnock and so forth were so, you know, anti anti devolution, and he's quite sharp in his criticism of them. But but also, obviously, the election of Thatcher, the Thatcher government, that's another massive blow for them, and for well, for the Welsh, for most Welsh opinion yeah. organisations. To be honest, it's quite interesting how how Cymdeithas and how uh, uh, Plaid also sort of react in the same way. Um, so initially, they sort of say, well, you know, we should still try and build some sort of national movement based around home rule. Um, but that's, I think, and, and you know, there's a lot of factors between the, you know, the language communities at that time, wasn't there? So, and they want to see that sort of rebuilding relationships there. But that, as Thatcherism kicks in, obviously, that, you know, that gets pushed a little bit to the sidelines. And at, at that time as well, the Communist Party is going through a, an internal split. Obviously, the Euro-Communists versus the... Uh, Sort of the the group that ends up being the Communist Party of Britain, taking yeah. more money star with them, um, and that's you know the, yeah the tankies sort of Euro communist sort of split, and you know that's all playing out at the same time. But I think in Wales it's quite interesting because when the miners' strike kicks in, I think Wales is quite unique in that it sets up that you know the Wales Committee in Support of Mining Communities, and that's a really broad based organisation that's you know that's trying to. Not, not only to support the mining communities, but also they start, you know, they start thinking about developing, you know, new forms of democracy and so forth. But and, and the key people who established that are the Communist Party, Community Youth, and I think New P. And it's all, you know, activists who start it. And it's, you know, just, yeah. it's, it's not the top of the party saying do that. It's it sort of comes from the grassroots. So I think that's really interesting how that showed that there could be an alternative sort of form of organisation in Wales, you know, and 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 how that sort of activism could be ha- harnessed. And again, undermining Dysmith's narrative, you know, about this, you know, not a lot of people know about the support that, like, Candathias and Welsh language activists showed to the miners during the, exactly. the strike, and it was it was significant. There's, so there's not Welsh speakers. It undermines the othering of Welsh speakers as these sort of bourgeois or Welsh language activists as, as other, based, and having nothing to do with industrial issues, I guess. What was the relationship like between, you know, these Welsh language activists and the communists throughout the 80s? Because obviously this is a, a big period of struggle for the Welsh language movement as well. Well, it's quite interesting because, I mean, from, you know, from the establishment of the Welsh language of Canisius Eif, you know, the Communist Party are quite, you know, of the activists. You know, they're always, you know, when people get arrested, they're, they're sending out messages of support to them. And that's, you know, it's quite vocal in the, in the Congresses. And I know in the 70s, you know, there was, there was an attempt in the 70s as well to sort of build a sort of, a broader movement between the nationalists, uh, you know, the language activists, the nationalist part, you know, applied and communists. And there's quite a lot of, I think, I interviewed uh, Mary Winter, who was a key, you know, activist at that time. And, you know, she said it was a big cross-fertilisation of ideas between these groups. 
And I think that does come out in the early 80s where you've got you know, the national left implied a leftward shift, a, a shift towards socialism within Kandita Siyaith, especially with the 82 manifesto. And, I, and a lot of that is reminiscent of what the Communist Party are arguing. So I think it's quite interesting how seems to be some sort of meeting of minds there. Where's the Labour Party in this? To the um, right, presumably. Yeah, members, well, the members of the Labour Party who are contributing, you know, who are who are also, tr- you know, part of these things. But I think, yeah, maybe the, the right wing, you know, there's, there's a lot of animosity to communists within the Labour Party as well. I mean, you know, someone like Kinnock, you know, he sees the Wales TC as a communist front, basically, because communists were active in organising it. But I think it's probably very far from a communist front, to be honest. And yeah, I mean, there's also a lot of animosity towards the communists from the Labour Party as well. They are involved in the the Wales uh, Committee Support of Mining Communities. But of course, I mean, that never, doesn't really survive long after the miners' strike. You know, there's, there's the usual sort of sectarianism of Welsh politics kicks in. And... Absolutely. Um, I, mean, I mean, that's quite an interesting period, I guess, because not just of the communists, but because it, I guess, you know, it's it represents Kinnock and stuff turning the Labour Party to the right as well. I mean, one thing to know maybe with the language as well is one of the things I I found most interesting was the communists' really progressive attitude to the Welsh language from a very early, you know, from when they really start thinking about the national, from the mid-30s, you know, they're coding for equal rights to the language very early on. And they're also in the 40s, you know, they're making links between economic decline and the decline of the language. I mean, this you know, there's one article I think in 40, 1944, or maybe slightly later, but where uh, you know, a communist is saying, "Well, look, you know, it's great to have the national library, it's great to have the national museum, but if if people are, aren't speaking the language in the local communities because they're you know they're leaving to find jobs elsewhere, then you know there goes your language really, because you know it has to be a living language to to keep going." And it's quite interesting how communists linking, you know, the way the, the Welsh language has been attacked in Wales in, into, you know, how imperialism, how that's a tactic of imperialism in in, in the colonies, you know. They attack the language. Uh, but what's interesting, they try and publish this, this article, and I've read the actual, the original article, but they really struggled to get it published. But when they did get it published, they took all the references to the Welsh language out of it. It was, uh, you know, the articles were about the attacks on languages in the colonies, but the actual link they were making to the... Welsh language wasn't there for that, unfortunately. Yeah. Why did they take it out then? I, I never got to the root of that, to be honest, because um, they were trying to they were trying to get it in the theoretical journal, but it ends up in sort of like a different a different magazine. But and, and the chap is saying this chap called William Lockwood, who was a quite a famous sort of linguist and translate translator, and he yeah, he's just expressing his frustration. He's saying like, I'm trying to get this in, um, but yeah, I mean the party is 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 very I think. It's got a very progressive attitude to the Welsh language. Unfortunately, internally, I don't think that ever... There's some weaknesses in terms of Welsh language material they publish. There's spurts of it and stuff. You know, there's a lot published in the 30s and 40s and so forth. And they do Cuffra in the 70s, which is quite an interesting sort of magazine they publish, journal they publish. And that's very sort of broad. I think we're going to have to sum it up, I guess. What I guess probably the most important thing is what's been the legacy, would you say? of the Communist Party, you know, what role is it, I say something, but it asks you a huge question, you know, what's been the legacy of the Communist Party? Is it, can you can you see it in what's happened in modern Wales? Um, I think a lot of the ideas, and we, I mean, oddly enough, we, I, was, I was discussing this with a, another group on, on Monday, and one of the things that came out of that discussion was a lot of the ideas that are seen as mainstream, or well, some of the ideas that are seen 
more mainstream now have their roots in what the Communist Party was arguing, you know, decades ago. Because people maybe won't admit it, <laughs> because you know they're a bit, you know, maybe a bit uh, shy of uh, noting that maybe some of the ideas they've had have come from those roots. Um, I think when you look at what they they had to say about the national question, and obviously they were never pro-independence. Although this, they do argue that if, if the Welsh people voted for independence, they, they, they would accept that. But um, but I think they were very progressive in terms of you know how they how they saw devolution working. And I think there's a lot we can still learn from from what they say, especially in terms of having you know a Welsh Parliament acting in the interests of the people and and you know being actually a, a sort of socialist beacon, an example for the rest of, of the UK to follow. Unfortunately. You know, I think that's a, that was a hope of quite a few people when when they you know voted for the Welsh Assembly, but I think that hasn't really happened. Really, it hasn't really shown itself to be massively different from what goes on at Westminster, unfortunately. So I think that's something that certainly we need to take in. You know, there's things like tax raising powers, which you know they were arguing for many many years ago, which you know still haven't come. It was interesting. One of the questions I asked some of the interviewees I was talking with, you know, well, what was it like? What, what do you feel now the party's finished? And they said, you know, you know, they, they, they were still involved in lots of different political activism, but what they felt the party not being there, what, the party not being there affected was, you know, an organising centre that could coordinate these activist sort of groups. So I think, I think that, I thought, I thought that was very, uh, you know, on the, on the point. Has it had an influence on the Labour Party in Wales in terms of like its structure or anything like that? It's a good question. I mean, I'm, I'm sure, you know, some, some of the ideas must have, you know, as people left the CP, then you know some of them would have gone to the Labour Party, and I'm sure some, some, you know, some of the ideas would naturally have gone into it. But to be honest, I mean, if you look at the Labour Party as it is today, it's, in Wales, it's pretty well. Maybe well, we need to again maybe differentiate between the the leadership and the rank and file because a lot of the leadership is is on the right, isn't it, of, of the of the Labour Party, unfortunately. But again, you know, there's a lot of good Labour activists about as well. Let's hope that you know the more left uh, socialist dimension can can gain. A bit of traction uh, in Wales as well as they have done elsewhere in the UK, maybe. We shall see. Right, Doug, is there any anyone you'd like to give a shout out to? Yeah, everybody I know. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I'm, I'm Beijing. I'm going, to, I'm going to Beijing on Monday, so shout out to Beijing. Doug, thanks so much for coming on. Honestly, it's been it's been incredibly insightful, really interesting. You've helped us, you know, as as we pivot to talking exclusively about communism, essentially. But it's been really fascinating and. Um, it's a really important book. The Reverend should go and buy it, get it for your loved ones for Christmas and help spread the, the good word, basically. So, Doug Jones, thanks very much. Yeah, thanks. Fantastic by Doug there. I uh, hope you found that as interesting and useful as we did. Um, and I hope many of you are coming around to understand the importance of communism. Okay, on to our first uh, Desolation Radio mailbox. Uh, mailbox oh yeah, should we do we... a segment? Let's check the mailbox. What have we got this week? Well, we've openly ripped this bit off Chapo Trap House, but the reason we... Oh, uh, have we? Oh. Yeah. Well, because they just have emails in, but but the reason we do need it is because because there's a couple of, you know, there's both of us and the work experience child on Twitter, mm. um, and we're both pretty bad at responding to people. It means that when we log into the account, we don't see new messages, mm. if that makes sense, because we assume the other person's responded. Um, and also, you know, it's hard sometimes to deal with a big conversation in like a direct message in Twitter so if the best medium if you want us to cover something is going to be to email us at desolationwales yep, at desolationwales. gmail.com uh, and so 
unfortunately, I mean, some of you have been um, making fun of us in the mailbox, mm. saying really hurtful things. Some of you have been uh, asking that Nathan sends uh, explicit photos of himself. Yeah. So, guys... That was you, Dan, though, wasn't it? Guys, that's not okay. Just, so stop asking Nathan. Mm. Um, so, okay, this is basically a request, a call, a call out from our good friend Chantel. What's up, Chantel? Um, so Chantel's basically asking us whether we can get someone on who can do something about ports in Wales, particularly sort of like tidal energy and, you know, the, the, you know, the, the debate going on about Swansea Bay Tidal Lagoon. And she's interested in about, you know, the model, you know, the, the impact on the environment, the costs, how would Brexit impact it and how is it going to empower the citizens of Wales? So it's a really good question. We, we could tie that in, I guess, with the big environmental um, episode, can we, that we have not yet done? No, but the, uh, call, the let the call be out there now. Um, so... If anyone knows anyone that is an expert in renewable energy and tidal power, please come on the show. Yeah. And that is the only mail that we are allowed to read because it's the only one that's... Yeah, PG-13. Like. Yeah, and, and positive. Yeah, and positive, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so uh, my shout-outs shout out as ever go to my family, and that's it. Yeah, no one else. Uh, my shout-outs go to SEALs. I think they're quite good. Um, I saw a picture online of some Russians training seals for a parade. Oh, and they're holding guns and doing twirls. Class, man. And another seal as well. He was holding like a saxophone and doing a twirl, which added like another dimension. And a shout out to my cousin Alicia, who's coming down uh, on the weekend, or has been on the weekend, depending on when this is listened to. What's up, Alicia? Yeah. Uh, so. Oh, yeah. And the, uh, also... Um, oh, I'm um, interested enough. She works for Ivy Park. You know, the Topshop slash Beyonce combo. Oh, okay. And um, she was out sorting something. She works in like a fashion department. She's like a fashion designer. And uh, she had a look and there was um, Philip Green talking to Beyonce right in front of her. No way. And in typical, like, cool fashion, she just wasn't bothered about Pushes it Pushes Beyonce out of the way and gets Philip Green's autograph. Like. Yeah. And asks for, <laughs> asks for how to put money offshore, like. That's a strip. Um, oh, yeah. Shout out to Aditya Chakrabarty as well for winning uh, Press Gazette. I think Journalist of the Year, which is well-deserved. Yeah, he's brilliant. Aditya is brilliant. And he's basically the only person, uh, it seems to be, in the mainstream media, fighting the good fight and exposing corruption, talking about the economy and real amazing human interest stories about um, Wales in particular. He's taken a real interest in Wales and he's done a lot to sort of promote how, well, to draw attention to the suffering that's happening in our country. So nice one, Aditya. And that's clearly also sort of a, a, oh, an attempt to a beg, like, yeah, a beg, please come on the podcast yeah. in the new year. Congrats right. on getting married as well, even though it was in July and he just found out. Oh yeah. So we weren't invited. So half congrats. <laughs> uh, okay. So that's it guys. So thanks so much for listening. And we're also going to have a Christmas do with Mark Cooper and Indy Cube, our comrade and uh, sugar daddy Mark. Yeah. Um, so it's going to be in his office basically. So uh, BYOB and a BYOD. Dolphins. Yeah. yeah. Um, Not enough to go around. So that'll be on Thursday the 21st. So it'll be really good if a bunch of people, if you want to come and have a pint in Cardiff or non-alcoholic beer, which is what I'll be doing. Wink. Then please do come and join us and it'll be a good laugh and we can get to meet everyone basically and you can sort of tell us how bad the sound is in person. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so we can actually hear you this time. Like, Okay. Bye. Thanks very much for listening and we'll see you soon. Cheers. Bye. You don't have any fresh fish? I'm afraid not, sir. Your eggs then, they are fresh? Oh, yes, sir. I will have poached eggs. And bring me some cigars, please. Havana cigars. And that will be all for you, sir? Yes. And I'll see you to it right away.
Try one of these Jamaican cigars, Ambassador. They're pretty good. Thank you, no. I do not support the work of imperialist stooges. Oh, only commie stooges, huh? Mr. President. You're gonna let that lousy commie punk vomit all over us like this. Mr. President. We haven't been able to reach Premier Kissoff on the Kremlin. They say they don't know where he is and he won't be back for another two hours. Hmm. Try B8654 Moscow. Yes, sir. You would never have found him through his office, Mr. President. Our Premier is a man of the people, but he's also a man, if you follow my meaning. <laughs> what did you say? I said Premier Kissoff is a degenerate atheist. Mr. Mr. President, I formally request that you have his ignorant Mr. President, Mr. President, Mr. President, I think they're trying the number. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. What is going on here? I demand an explanation. This clumsy fool tried to plant that ridiculous camera on me. Yeah, you bet your sweets, Mr. Commie. Look at this, Mr. President. This lousy commie rat was taking pictures with this thing of the big board. 